Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with James Hanaham about his new book, Pilot Imposter. Yes, it's a very interesting book. Yeah, I think I was expecting something different, maybe more of a novel. And this book is just such a wild experiment, so idiosyncratic, so risky, so different. I was really impressed and surprised. Yeah, me too. I guess we should say to listeners, um, it's a mix of poetry and prose, and there's visual elements to it. There's images that James himself put into the book. So the form is really unusual and I think much more experimental than what we usually see. And it's really dynamic, like every page sort of offers something something new. So it was a very interesting book to talk about. So maybe we should listen to that interview. Yeah, let's do it. Welcome to this show, James, and thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on your new book. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. James, I was thinking, just because this book is so inventive. Weird. Weird <laughs> Weird is a word for it, yes, and very cool. I was wondering if we could just talk about some of the constituent parts, because there seems like there's different themes going, and just how you came to put them all together. Yeah. I mean, it was basically a kind of freak out. I don't want to really call it like, all right. So it was, I'll give you a little context. It was December of 2016. And, you know, just a month after what I was hoping we would start calling 11-9. <laughs> Do you remember that moment where everyone was so like disheartened by the outcome of the election? And we were just like, what the heck is going to happen? So my husband and I had gone to Cape Verde and Lisbon. And I usually bring a representative work of literature to new countries that I haven't been to. And I had read a book by a Cape Verdean author, Almeida. I can never remember his name, but his last name is Almeida. And it was pretty short and it was kind of unusual for me to do this, but I started reading the book that I brought to represent Lisbon, which was an anthology of Fernando Pessoa's work before I'd gotten to Lisbon. So I was on the plane. I was in that mood that we were all in. And I started reading this book. And the first line of the entire book is from a poem called The Keeper of Sheep, at least in Richard Zenith's translation. And that line he translated as, I've never kept sheep, but it's as if I did. Which to me sort of encapsulated a lot of what I was frustrated about, not just in the election, but just in a general impression of what was happening in like leadership in the world was that people who had like no experience were being elected because they had no experience and screwing things up really badly and not really suffering any consequences. And that seemed a pretty dangerous situation to be in. Also, I think there had been some comedians who are comparing the election of he who will not be named to hiring a pilot without checking their credentials or like, you know, hiring somebody who'd never flown a plane to be your pilot. And I was already thinking, because I was on a plane, I was already thinking of some of these things. 
And then I had been obsessed with a television show called Air Disasters. At least it's called that in this country. It was originally, I think, a Canadian show called Mayday. So I already knew a lot about what can go wrong on a plane. <laughs> and, but also, you know, a feeling that there are a lot of safety protocols in place and an understanding of like just how much technical information and know-how you have to have in order to get a plane just in the air, let alone like the feeling of airmanship. And it, it seemed to me like airmanship is one of those things that you just can't fake. It's not like you could have all the charisma in the world, but if you can't get that plane in the air and get people you know, safely to their destination, like that's pretty obvious evidence that you've screwed up. And so I think a lot of all of these things were kind of converging in my mind at the same time. And I thought, oh, I really want to respond in some way to this work because I'd read a little bit further and I was like, oh, and this is the thing about Fernando Pessoa that I didn't mention before is that his project was pretty much to create out of thin air a community of Portuguese poets in the early 20th century by just inventing heteronyms, he called them. They're like alter egos, but like with much more elaborate backstories and you know relationships between some of them edited each other. They were friends. I think some of them were rivals, but there's like, it's controversial how many there actually are. I think some people say there's like 37 major ones, but they go to about 70. And anyway, this was something that people didn't really start doing as an artistic practice until much later in the 20th century, like, you know, thinking about fragmented identity and personas and, you know, reinvention of the self, or that became much more of a thing toward the end of the 20th century. And partially because Pessoa was working in complete obscurity, he didn't really publish very much before he died. And he left most of his work a trunk, like scraps of sort of semi-undifferentiated paper in a trunk that is it's sort of an exciting challenge for any editor who wants to put together a book of anything Pessoa has ever done, especially what people consider his masterwork, the Book of Disquiet, which someone, I wish I could remember who described it this way, but they described it as a non-book so the thing I was going to say was that the persona he was writing under is this guy named Alberto Cairo, who is kind of a, I think he's supposed to be a kind of naive poet who is kind of anti-poetic. That is to say, he looks at the world and takes it at face value, which I think is a little bit of a joke, but it's played out so carefully that it doesn't, it doesn't seem as if Pessoa is being ironic about it. So he has this like tendency to look at the world and make the conclusion that what he sees is all there is, which is deeply anti-poetic, right? It's like poets we think of as people who look at the world and they're like, oh, well, here are these connections. Here is this subtext. Here is history. Here is, you know, spirituality. He's just like, the trees are trees. <laughs> And this is supposed to be a kind of wisdom. But to me, some of it felt like almost a thing that you would hear totalitarian governments saying, like, everything mm -hmm. is as it seems. There is no nothing behind the curtain. And so that kind of got me into a little bit of a froth. And so before the plane ride was over, it was like a five-hour plane ride. So I had a lot of time to consider this. But before the plane ride was over, I was like, 
I feel like I want to respond to every one of these poems. Maybe it could be some kind of a book. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I was thinking, oh, this is going to be my next book. It was just like, this could be an interesting project. I have things like this sitting around on my laptop, unpublished, you know, from going many years back that I'd never really attempted to do anything with. And then as if to seal the deal, when we landed in Lisbon, the first person I talked to in Portugal was a woman behind the car rental desk whose last name was Pessoa. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and I, I was sort of like, oh, you know, that must be like the Smith or Jones of Portugal. So I was like, isn't that a common name, Pessoa? And she was like, no. So you <laughs> took it as a sign. Yeah, it gave me the opportunity to have a little conversation with her. Like I had the book in my bag and I was like, oh, I've been reading a little bit. So she was like, I don't know if I'm related to him, but I love his work. It was one of the oddest conversations I've ever had with like a car rental agent. So it seemed a little bit like a sign, but these things, Pessoa is kind of everywhere in Lisbon if you know where to look or if you're Mm -hmm. looking out of the side of your eye. Lisbon is like a little Where's Waldo of Pessoa merchandise. (laughs) Well, it seemed like part of the thing that Pessoa also allowed you to get at that we haven't touched on yet is colonization and the Portuguese history. I mean, speaking of seeing things that are not just Portugal or just Lisbon, but a whole history there of the wealth that really poured into Lisbon and built it. That seemed to be part of the guiding or a guiding interest here, the history of colonization. Can you talk a little bit about that? What about that struck you as particularly interesting? Well, this was actually my first trip to an African country going to Cape Verde. And I was on the way back and it felt like I was following some sort of route, some sort of potential trade route that, you know, maybe somebody... I knew (laughs) or had been related to me might have followed unwillingly. And so that was also another layer of things that were on my mind as I was making this journey. And of course, you know, the Portuguese responsibility for starting to some extent the slave trade. Although, you know, of course they had lots of help. It wasn't as if one can just point a finger at the Portuguese alone and say, like, you guys are responsible. But like, they were a big part of the very origins of it. And so there was like a vague sort of a question I had, I guess, more than anything else, like, what trace elements are still here for me to investigate? And what is the basis of my mistrust here? I mean, I sort of know what it would be, but I'm always questioning everything. I can't really just be like, all right, this is the truth. And here we are. I just have to be like, all right, I'm having this impression. Let me follow it and see if there's what about it is real. It seems that something else about the Pessoa connection of the heteronyms that's interesting in relation to the themes of the book is that the book really puts the question of self at a forefront and then negates the possibility of a coherent self throughout, not only because the pieces in the book are really fractured, there's no consistent narrator. It, it does seem that there are many selves, but even this quote that you open the book with that's so amazing about the kind of simulacrum of a coherent self and the pilot, maybe you could 
refresh me what that quote is. It's just an amazing way to start a book because it kind of puts the whole thing in question from the very beginning. Like, what is a self? It's just, it's not real. Yeah. Jan Westerhoff, who is a professor of Buddhism, a particular area of Buddhist thought at Oxford, had written this book called Reality, A Brief Introduction. It's from that series, that sort of wonderful series of little tiny books about big subjects that the Oxford University Press puts out. I don't think I was reading it as like research for the book, but when I came across this quote, I was already sort of deeply into thinking about what was happening in the thing I was writing. And it seemed just too perfect. Just the idea that he's comparing consciousness or the search for a real reality that is not dependent on human interests and concerns, I think, as he puts it, is like a flight simulator in which not only is the flight simulated, but also the pilot. And so there's there's no real anything to be found <laughs> within that sort of closed circuit of flight simulator and human reality being simulated as well. When I started out writing the book, I felt like it was much more about failures of leadership, you know, like pilots who had gone rogue. And, you know, there's like some really terrible stories of pilots who deliberately crash planes in order to commit suicide and or evade debt. It's not a common occurrence, but like when it happens, it's just like so horrible. And then it sort of gradually morphed into a question that was more about how are people able to manipulate the fabric of reality, essentially, so that you have someone like he who will not be named just barking that things are untrue, even though they're, they need more investigation, or they're actually much more rigorous than he is. And then somehow like public opinion shifting and like the horrible power that that guy actually had that was pretty difficult in a lot of ways to like completely shut out of one's ears and life. And like, there was just, we had to do like so much work to keep from listening and all the catchphrases and nicknames and like that kind of garbage that was coming out of that face hole. It was just really difficult, like not to be completely unaffected by it. I mean, far from suddenly changing one's political views and joining his side of things. It was really just about like, how can this person bend our collective reality in such a way that it actually does seem to bend in distorted ways? But then it became something more about just selves in general, because I think part of it, and I feel like I'm making this sound much more complicated just by talking about it. But I think it was really that I have a tendency when I'm working and I feel like I'm making an accusation against something I despise to look at myself after that and say like, well, how am I not, what makes me any better than this thing that I'm pointing my finger at? And so I think that was the pivot on which I started to think about just my own identity and other people's identities and like how just like malleable and not ephemeral exactly, but like transformable, transmutable people's identities are. And 
the usual way of thinking about identity these days is to look at somebody's superficial characteristics and make a determination about who they are and where they're from based on, you know, cultural things and, and skin color and all of that kind of stuff. When I've always also felt that it was important to think about how people actually experience the world as a big part of identity that never really gets the same kind of play. Partially because it's more complicated, it's harder to look at somebody and really understand anything about who they are or where they're from. I mean, one has a hard time figuring out such things about oneself and one's own life. I mean, it couldn't be ruder to look at another person and think that because you are looking at them, you can know a damn thing about what's going on in their head or their life or their history. Can you give an example of what you mean by an identity via how a person experiences the world? I mean, when you say that, what do you think of? Just the fact that it's really impossible to tell what's going on for real outside one's own perception. I assume that you are a sentient being with your own life and feelings and history and everything. But that's basically, I think, an agreement that people have made about what reality is. But we can't really, just based on the way things work, we can't get outside of that and say, look, this is real and this is not, or you are real and I'm not, or I'm real and you're not. It just gets, I don't want to get so far into the woods philosophically about it, but that's kind of the idea. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with James Hanahan about his new book, Pilot Imposter. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I'm happy to have Melissa Anderson on the line. Melissa Anderson is an amazing critic, and she's the author of a new book called Inland Empire on the film by David Lynch. And she has a book recommendation for us. Melissa. I cannot recommend highly enough West of Eden by Jean Stein, published in 2016. It may be one of the greatest books about the particular pathologies in Hollywood. It is much like Jean Stein's most famous book, which is her book about Edie Sedgwick, which came out in the early 80s. West of Eden is also structured just, just as Edie is, which is a series of interviews. So it's a polyvocal oral history of a very strange place. And it is devoted to five different people. And the chapter devoted to, it's the penultimate chapter, devoted to the Hollywood actress Jennifer Jones. I can think of very few texts that so mesmerizingly lay bare the derangements of Hollywood. And it was recommended to me by a very dear friend, the film scholar Jean Ma, who was also very influential, very helpful person while I was writing the Inland Empire monograph. She gave me a, a lot of very helpful texts to, to look at. 
And I read West of Eden in late June of this of 2021, just after I had finalized the Inland Empire monograph. So Inland Empire, as we've discussed, is about various pathologies in Hollywood. It's about an actress who has a kind of psychotic break into shatters into many different personae. So just after finishing that monograph, I went on a brief vacation with my girlfriend and read this book, just tore through it. And I thought, oh, wow, I clearly, I wish to live forever in the haunted house of Hollywood. So this is my book recommendation. Oh, what a recommendation. Wow. <laughs> so it makes you want to live in the haunted house, not evicted. Clearly, I can't, I can't get out of the haunted house. I just, here in my two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, I'm subletting the haunted house of Hollywood, one must uh-huh. conclude. <laughs> Can you tell us the title of the book and the author again? The book is called West of Eden, and it is by Jean Stein. Thank you so much, Melissa. Kate, thank you. That was Melissa Anderson. Her new book is called Inland Empire. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with James Hanahan, author of Pilot Imposter. Yeah, it seems like the pilot, you know, behind the closed door, flying the plane serves as, you know, kind of a symbolic for so much. At times in the book, I would think that it was an idea of God overseeing everything and and taking care, not, you know, take maybe not taking care of us, but overseeing what happens in the world that some people find comfort in that. And other times it almost seems like, well, that that the person behind the the door is ourselves. You know, it's not this the kind of deep symbolism of the pilot flying the plane um, seems like it it gave you a lot to work with in in the book. I think it was a little simpler than than what you're saying. I feel like the the metaphor for me became like we are all the pilots of the, our own bodies essentially and our own minds and we're all you know headed toward oblivion <laughs> whether we like it or not right so like we're the the doomed pilots of these planes that are essentially going to crash at some point it's interesting to think about oh sorry go ahead no no i was i was i was going to comment on how depressing an idea that is <laughs> That's actually what I was going to say, where it's like, it's interesting to think about it in that term because, or in that way, um, because if you think about it that way, it leaves all of us sort of literally like radically ungrounded, right? Like, I mean, if we are all pilots, we're literally ungrounded in that we are in in the sky sort of piloting ourselves to who knows where. But that there's like not anything, it's not anything really to hold on to, not, not any not any sound foundation to stand on. And, and that's really scary. So, so I guess my question for you is like, so what does it feel like to be in that sort of headspace while working on this book? Or do you feel like you are in that headspace a lot? Well, the funny thing is I was really thinking of the, the, interaction with um, Pessoa and his heteronyms as like, just like a sort of daily meditative practice. I would, I was actually also working on a different book that's coming out in June. And 
sort of as it was almost like the warm up to working on the other book was that I would read a Pessoa poem and kind of think about what I wanted to respond to in it and then write something without any thought of what the genre was going to be. Because that was sort of the way, after a certain point, I realized that writing without thinking about the genre or, you know, trying to make the whole thing in one genre or of one piece was a way of like echoing Pessoa's methods without repeating them. And, you know, in my own life, I've done a lot of different types of writing. So I thought, well, you know, let's see how this works. Um, yeah. Uh, can I ask you about genre um, in this case, just because I usually wouldn't, you know, even think about it. I, I don't like really saying, oh, this, this is this, this is that. But um, in this right, case, right. I, I thought it's uh, it seems significant that the book is classified as fiction instead of poetry. It is? That's what I saw. <laughs> I, I believe that's the, the listing I saw. Well, this is a problem, right? <laughs> because actually, uh, Viet Nguyen published, when he was editing Plowshares in 2019, he uh, published a few different of these, a few, a bunch of these uh, pieces that are in the book. And at a certain point, they asked me, because they have very like rigid, this journal, they have very like rigid categories into which things have to um, be placed. They asked me like, what category did these, did these fall into? And I ended up like labeling each one of them something different pretty much. <laughs> so there was one that was like more nonfiction than not. And then there was another that was like a poem. And there was another that was, you know, just a something else and something fictional, just a vignette. But, you know, when it comes time to talk about these things in public or, you know, put them in a book that people are going to look at on a shelf in a section of a, of a bookstore. The demand for an author to make a determination about what category the book falls into suddenly becomes very stark. And I think the book actually, I'm trying to make sure that it falls into as many categories as it can. Um, I don't know who told you it was fiction. I think that's what but, the promotional material said. Yeah, in a way, it sort of echoes the problem of the book. You know, usually, like I'm saying, I, I I wouldn't, it wouldn't mean much to me how a book was classified. But in this case, I did think that the expectation that's set up and thinking something's fiction and then what this book was, which seems so experimental and so different was kind of more confounding than a, than a normal, like playing with genre. This truly did play with genre to me in a way that most books that people say are experimental just, just don't, especially because of the images as well, which I think we're much more used to um, in kind of more poetry, experimental prose right. books. Right. I was saying that it's this book is really more in the poetry space, as we would say. But I think that's only because poets actually get to do more things than fiction writers seem to think they are capable of in this day and age for some reason. Oh, completely. Uh, yeah. I want to blame commercialization for that because, you know, I don't think there are that many poets outside of, you know, one or two people who are imagining that their book of poetry might become a, fe a feature film <laughs> made by some 
or like that it would even, you know, get Oprah's attention or, you know, there just aren't the same kind of potential. There, there isn't the same kind of potential for um, money and publicity around uh, books of poetry. And so poets fight about like things that are much more, I don't know, status and, you know, actually the actual work, I think. But yeah, there was one review that said it was a positive review, but it was like, whatever this book is. And I'm, I'm content for people to not be sure what's happening. And it, I'm, I apologize for the, the publicity machine having been so like too inflexible to be able to say what the book was without reducing it. It could be positive that it's been labeled as fiction. It, it is labeled as fiction on um, on this little sheet of paper that we got with the with the book. But in a way, it could be positive in that um, maybe the publicity machine can expand what commercial fiction looks like. <laughs> well, that seems unlikely, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it, I wanted to um, ask you. Oh, sorry, Kate. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I wanted to ask about the visual elements in this book. Um, because we we just brought them up, um, because this book is is it's a mix of text and collage, other kinds of visual work. Can you talk a little bit about um, the visual aspects of of this book? Well, originally I was planning to design the book myself as I wrote it, because when I first started doing anything like this, I started as a graphic designer at the Village Voice way, way back. My undergraduate degrees in graphic design, actually. Mm. Um, And, you know, it was just kind of a fun project to see if I could do that. And I'd taken all these pictures while I was in Lisbon because I started to notice how many interesting surfaces there were all over the place. Just lots of little squares and like there's like ceramic tiles on the walls in a lot of places. And there's like a lot of graffiti. And there are a lot of layers to the city itself. Do you know how old Lisbon is? It's about 3,200 years old. And so there, like, there was a, you know, a time when it was controlled by the Romans. There's a time mm-hmm. when it was controlled by the Moors. And then, you know, modern, it's, it's just like, there was an archeological dig near the hotel where my husband and I were staying. And it was like in the way in the back of this church and there was like a hole 60 feet deep or something where you could see like a Roman sewer all the way at the bottom. It was really kind of an excitingly layered place. So I had, I had done that and then the file just got too big. And it was like just the pain to open it and, and manipulate it. And it was also like the spaces I'd left for writing got smaller like they were too small for me to write the way I wanted to write so I was like well I'll just you know alter this in some way but I'd already I'd already designed about I don't know 70 pages of stuff by the time I made that decision I forget exactly what when I made this determination but when I started revising it since the book is is a shadow volume of an anthology. That means like there's just a lot more in it than there would be in a usual kind of poetry manuscript or even like some other kinds of books. So I I determined that I was going to take a hell of a lot out of it. And I made all these rules for different passes of the manuscripts. Like when I removed, because I also wanted it, I also wanted it to remain a book that you could Look at the other book. You can look at uh, Pessoa and Company, the anthology, 
and pretty much play along if you want. Like if you had a copy of that book and you were, you had a copy of Pilot Imposter, you could go through, look at Pessoa's work, and then look at my response to each thing, almost in order. I think there's one sort of like poem that I got from another book, but I wanted to keep it that way to the extent that I could, and it fortunately worked out okay. But then I thought like during, so during the first revision or like, I don't remember exactly if this was the rule, but like during the first revision, I'm going to replace any poem or piece that I take out with an image from the original design, but with the words removed. So a lot of those sort of things with those, those images with like designy things and numbers on them are the original first draft altered in that way. There are other categories of image that are in there, like pictures from crash sites or pictures that had to do with incidents that were happening on airplanes around the same time. It seemed that there were a lot of, and I think there's just a kind of, maybe it's just a viral video thing, but it seemed, it seemed as if there were a lot more sort of incidents of unruly bad behavior among both airline pilots and passengers during that time. So, and there were some images from stuff like that. And then sometimes I'll take a screen grab of a, one of those uh, dialogue boxes that come up all the time. Like something's not right. <laughs> you get that one. <laughs> so when I see one that looks like you could take it out of context and it might be interesting somehow, uh, like take a screen grab and put it somewhere. Also, because like I, I recognize that some of these things are really ephemeral. So if you bother to remember what they are, and then you go back to them later, they have this like really interesting sort of quaintness. And it was like this thing that you would see all the time, but you would would never, you don't think about anymore. Like, do you remember the dancing babies that used to be all over the internet? Those figures yes, that used to totally. But like that, that's one of those things that was like this used to be a big part of like my visual day, and now it's just gone. And I, I without anyone acknowledging that it was there. I'm curious in your mind what the relationship between the text and the image would be, ideally for the reader. You know, like, how would you be hoping that they work in, in concert together? Because that's something that I find very hard to describe. And now, now in fiction, it's, it's pretty common for people to use photographs. It, it seems very difficult well, to put into words, but what do you hope will happen when someone... I mean, I guess I did want it to be a little mysterious. Otherwise, I would have made it a little clearer. I didn't want very much of it to be an illustration of what was happening in the pieces. I wanted them to just sort of provide, sometimes I know that some of them provide just like a little rest from like the last piece or like a little, and a few of them, it was impossible for me to change in a way that would make them, them fit into the current design of the book. So um, I had designed them so that there was so much interplay between the image and the text that they felt like I just couldn't like redo them. I just had to like reprint them as images, even though they're also, there's one called Great Weekend that's like that. 
that was pretty much as I designed it in the in the original. And then what's the other one? Follow your destiny. That's just like a spread. And so I think if anything, it's a little bit like, you know, I was saying like one of the things that was fascinating to me about Lisbon was all, were all the different layers of history that were, you know, just physically in front of you. And maybe that's sort of what the the, the photographs, excuse me, the uh, the images are an attempt to evoke, I guess. Because, you know, similarly, these are bits and pieces of the earlier manuscript that doesn't technically exist anymore. And you're getting, it's not, it's not something that, you know, you ever really get to see in other books, right? It's like, one might know on, a, on an abstract level, like that a book has gone through many different iterations. You're, you know, your author might say to you, I did 20 drafts, but like, you can't really see the evidence of that a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think kind of, hopefully, the, the photographs sort of loosen things up and make you know, make it a little more obvious, like the construction of the whole thing. Thank you so much, James. We've been speaking with James Hanaham. His newest book is called Pilot Imposter. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.